How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our lesson today, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. We'll take a few moments to focus our attention upon the Lord in prayer and in preparation. We need to make sure that we are in right relationship with God. Scripture says that believers are part of the family of God. We are to enjoy our relationship with Him, our fellowship with Him, our rapport with Him. But when we sin, that rapport, that fellowship is broken. In order to restore it, we need to admit or acknowledge to Him the sin that we've committed, and He promises to immediately forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the sins we commit, but all the sins that, I mean, not just the sins we remember and confess, but all the sins that we have committed. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're indeed thankful, grateful for the opportunity we have to come to you in prayer. We're thankful for all the many blessings that you have given us, above all for the blessings that we have in the spiritual life in this church age, including the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit, who guides and directs us and is the power that enables us to live the Christian life. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians and focusing on what it means to claim promises and to live a life uh, where we walk by faith and not by sight, we pray that you would help us to uh, see how to do that, to understand the significance of it, and to redirect our priorities and the way in which we manage or the time in our lives so that we can do what we need to do in order to make this a reality in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Right now we're on an independent study that is located within our passage that we are studying, the epistle that we're studying in 1 Thessalonians. And when I get into a a side study uh, via a particular book study, I always like to go back and anchor it in the text of Scripture that we are studying. Uh, Too often sometimes in doctrinal studies, it's as if we sort of lose our scriptural foundation. We sometimes can get away into talking about doctrinal principles or theological concepts and forget that these are derived from the scripture. So we've been studying in 1 Thessalonians, and we started a study on the faith rest drill, understanding how to walk by faith claiming promises. We've been looking at a verse in particular to begin with, Isaiah 40:31, that begins waiting on the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord. And so we're focusing on that this morning, learning what that means, learning to be able to claim that promise a little more effectively. 1 Thessalonians 1.8 records Paul's uh, praise for the Thessalonian believers that their faith toward God had gone out. 
uh, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but throughout all of the Roman Empire. Their reputation as a church and a congregation of, of faith, not just the content of their faith, not just as we use the term sometime today, that there are people who go to church or people involved in church, people who are involved in some sort of religious activity, but these were people who were focused on a day-by-day day, day walk by faith with the Lord. They were trusting in the Lord in order to... Uh, make it through life, claiming promises. Colossians 2 6 states that uh, as we receive Christ, which was by faith alone, we walk in Him. Now, that faith in Christ was mediated through the Scriptures. We read promises such as Acts 16 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We claim that as a promise in the sense that we trusted in Christ, knowing that if that was true, that we would have eternal salvation. So faith is always directed toward Scripture. It is always directed toward some instruction in Scripture, some command in Scripture, some promise in Scripture. And so Second Corinthians 5, 7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. In 3 John 3, John tells us that this is a walk according to truth, or walk by truth. So the truth is the Word of God. So there's always this combination of faith toward God, but it is based in how and what He has revealed in His Word. Now we looked at the steps in the faith rest drill, and we talked about that first step, which means to claim a promise. It's interesting, several years ago when I was in Kiev, one year I was teaching this as a series at uh, Jim Meyer's church, at the Word of God church there in Kiev, and we were translating the notes into Russian. This was about a month or so before I was actually going in there. And the question came up, what does it mean to claim a promise? How do you translate that into Russian, because we use that term idiomatically. It's transferred over from the concept of sort of staking a claim. For example, a miner who uh, was had found a place that he wanted to uh, claim uh, and, and to mine for ore would stake a claim. And that's uh, one sense in that term. This is very idiomatic. So it was interesting because when you say that to someone in, in English that we're claiming a promise, uh, we know what that means. But trying to transfer that into another language led to some interesting discussions. And what we mean by claiming a promise is that we are basically holding God to his word. He has stated something in his word that he's going to do something Many times it's conditioned upon something we do, that if we wait on the Lord, then something will result from that. If we confess our sins, something will result from that. If we bring things to him in prayer, uh, something will result in, in that. And so we have these kinds of promises, and we're holding God to that. We're saying, okay, Lord, you said that if I... Uh, confess my sins, you'll forgive me, and I'll be cleansed. If I wait upon you, then I will have strength and endurance. Uh, if instead of being anxious, I bring my request before you in prayer, then I will have peace of mind and tranquility of soul. 
So these are that is essentially what we mean when we say that we're claiming a promise. We are mixing our faith with the Word of God. It is never just faith in faith. It's not just this idea of uh, just trust, just believe something will happen. We often hear people say that, and, and they... Um, that comes out of a religious background in the culture, but it's sort of grown into a sort of impersonal fatalism that if we just believe, somehow our faith can change reality. Now, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is the kind of faith that is emphasized in what is known as the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it gospel that is popular in certain evangelical circles. But that is not what the Bible talks about faith. Faith, in the sense that we're talking about, is a faith that is directed toward the Word of God and specific statements in the Word of God. And so to claim a promise, we have to understand the promise. Uh, We talked about faith as being comprised of two essential elements. The first element is understanding. Classically, within some theological systems, uh, faith was broken down into three uh, categories or three components understanding, which is uh, uh, used the Latin word notitia, and then you had a census, which meant to agree with the principle, and then they added fiducia, a term meaning uh, faith. So basically you're defining faith by itself, which shows a redundancy there that is uh, not acceptable when you're defining something. You never define something by by its own word. So essentially we showed that faith is really agreeing with God, uh, uh, believing that something is true, being um, convinced that it is true, but it's preceded by understanding it. So you have to understand the nature of the promise. And this is part of the second step, which is thinking through the doctrinal rationales embedded in the promise. Any statement, any, especially an if-then statement or any compound sentence, has a structure to it, a thought behind it. There is, uh, it's grounded upon certain, certain assumptions. And so, as we rehearse that in our mind, we ought to focus upon what's embedded within the thought structure of that particular. Uh, that particular promise. We have to come to understand just what is being said and why it is being said. So we think about a promise, and this is part of uh, what I find very helpful if we're memorizing Scripture is to just think it through, break it down, write it down in various ways, uh, take a piece of paper, just write it. Uh, someone asked me just the other day about how I memorize Scripture, and I've used lots of different uh, methods over the years. Sometimes I'll write a verse down over and over and over again. Sometimes I'll take it and break it down into phrases and then look at each phrase, see how they're uh, connected to each other, sort of a rough outline type of thing, a rough diagram. 
Uh, there are many different ways that we can do this. Look the words up in a dictionary. Look up the English words to see what they mean. If you have a concordance and you can look up the uh, English words in a concordance, for example, a Strong's concordance will have <coughs> a number out to the side. If you were to look up uh, the word weight in a Strong's concordance, you would see to the right of that word weight, you would see a list of numbers. Some numbers are italics. In italics, that would be, I believe, the Old Testament passages in the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word. And some of those numbers are in non-italics, and that would refer to the Greek word. So that would distinguish between Old and New Testament. And you can then look that number up in the back of the concordance, and there's a very, very basic rudimentary uh, lexicon back there. So you look the word up, and it gives you not really definitions for those Greek or Hebrew words. It basically lists the two or three ways in which that Hebrew or Greek word is translated into English. And this gives you some understanding of the background. Then you can maybe look that number up and see how, or if it says maybe in some places like weight might also be translated hope in some other passages. And you can look up not only the other other verses where it's translated weight, but other passages where it's translated hope. And you can get a better idea. And that's something of what we're going to do uh, some more of this this uh, in this lesson. So we think through these doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise. This is what the Bible talks about in the concept of of meditation. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But as we think it through in terms of the, identifying those rationales, then we realize that the the verse expresses certain certain conclusions that as a result of the fact that uh, for example, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The conclusion from that is that if we've done that, we are forgiven. There's no reason to feel guilty. There's no reason to uh, look back at the mistakes or to focus on the failures that we have made. God has forgiven us and wiped the slate clean so that we can go forward in the Christian life. Now, I want to go back and talk a minute about what the Bible says about meditation. Actually, in the Hebrew, there's several different words that are translated into English, meditate. And they are basically synonyms, and they all have the same sense of thinking something through, maybe repeating something out loud. One of the words is really uh, interesting. It has the idea of moaning or groaning, literally, but it sort of reflects the idea that if someone is meditating on Scripture or memorizing Scripture, you may just be mumbling it or saying it to yourself over and over again. And so this this is how that word uh, came to be applied uh, to to meditation. Joshua one eight is a tremendous verse to memorize. This was uh, instructions given to Joshua as he was taking over. Uh, the leadership of the Israelites after the death of Moses. <clears throat> and he told, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Notice the connection between mouth and meditation there. 
this is that idea that of saying it over and over again that helps to uh, helps us to remember it and to memorize it. So it's that idea that uh, you sh- it shall not depart from your mouth. You meditate in it day and night. Day and night is a figure of speech called the merism, which is where you take two opposites, such as hot and cold, or east, west, north, and south. You take these opposites, and they indicate a totality of something. So what the merism means here of day and night is something that you should do continuously, not just during the day or in the morning and not just at night, but throughout the day, recall these these verses to memory. You shall meditate in it day and night for a purpose. It's not just a matter of learning verses. It's not just an academic exercise of, of getting this into our brain so that we can recite Scripture. It is for the purpose of observation, the purpose of application, the purpose of implementing it into our thought life and into our uh, our day-to-day life and what we do and how we do it. So we meditate day and night for the purpose that we may observe to do all that is written in it. So it's not selective. It is, it, it is universal. And then a promise was made. Now, this promise is originally made to Joshua. There's an implication here that if we do the same thing, then we will get the same results. So we can apply this to ourselves, but this has a a direct application to Joshua only because he is the one to whom this promise is given. But there's an implication there because we see similar statements made at different times to different uh, people in the Old Testament. So we can universalize this and we're justified in making an application to ourselves as well. It says, but then you will make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Now, what the Scripture means by prosperity and success here must be understood in context, that Joshua would be victorious as he was going about God's will to conquer the Canaanites. So, by application, what this is saying is that if we internalize the Word of God and apply it, then the result is that we will be successful in doing that which God has commissioned us to do. And in the New Testament, in the church age, God has commissioned us to be witnesses, to to grow to spiritual maturity first, and to be witnesses uh, to others, and to uh, serve the Lord in the local church through serving one another, loving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, and strengthening one another. And so these are the kinds of promises that as we grow and mature, that we will be successful in our spiritual life. It, this is very similar to another statement in Scripture that is, uh, again, a more universal application of meditation, and this is in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 2 states, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, in both of these passages, you had an implication, uh, 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 emphasis on meditating on the law. Now, for both David, who wrote Psalm 1, and for Joshua, the law referred 
to the Torah primarily, and the word Torah, where we usually translate it law, the root meaning for Torah is instruction. So it's talking about the instruction of the word. And for David, that would have included more than Torah because there were additional books that had been written by his time, even though the Old Testament canon had not been completed. For us, the term law of the Lord can apply to all of Scripture. Now, if we look at the context of Psalm 1, we read that it begins with a statement of blessedness, of happiness, related to the person who is a believer walking with the Lord. Verse 1 reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So when we come to verse 2, the one who delights in the law is the one who, in contrast, is not living in the world system. He's not living according to his sin nature. He's not living in autonomy or independence from God. But he is uh, leading his spiritual life and walking in dependence with the Lord. So there is a an emphasis here on his focus on the Word. He delights in the Word, and he meditates on it day and night. The results are given in Psalm 1-3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So the results that are given in verse 3 are parallel to the results that are given to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, the concept of prosperity, success, productivity. That, that This does not mean that you will be materially successful or necessarily uh, financially successful, successful in business, but you're successful in your spiritual life. That which you do in fulfilling the plan and purpose of God uh, for your life. And then the contrast is given uh, in terms of the wicked and what happens to them in verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we have a, a, a great psalm here to meditate on and to tell us the importance of focusing on God's Word and walking consistently with Him, that the result of that is success, prosperity, happiness, in contrast to the person who disobeys, uh, disobeys the law. The focus is meditating on the Word with the idea of thinking something through over and over again so that we come to understand what is being taught and what is being said. In Psalm 119, the word meditate is used several times. I've just picked a couple of, uh, uh, one example from that actually. Psalm, um, Psalm 119.15, the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Psalm 119 is a fascinating psalm to read through and to think through. It is a psalm that extols the virtues and the value of God's word, God's revelation. And the psalmist uses numerous synonyms to express 
God's Word. In fact, you can go through and see uh, many of these and identify these, that he's talking about the Word of God. He doesn't just use words like law, but he uses uh, a different different terms. For example, in Psalm 119, talks about those who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies. In verse 3, uh, they walk in his ways. Uh, verse 4, ordain your precepts. Uh, verse 5, uh, keep your statutes. Uh, verse 6, commandments. Verse 7, righteous judgments. Verse 8, statutes. So each verse says something about God's Word using these various synonyms to describe uh, God's revelation. Psalm 119.15, the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. So he's focusing not only on what God has revealed in terms of his precepts, in terms of his instructions and in the law, but then he goes beyond that to think through God's ways. Uh, Isaiah say, in Isaiah, God says that his ways are not our ways, so we only learn of God's ways through his word. So we need to spend time reflecting upon God's ways. Psalm 119.48 is another psalm. I don't have a slide for this one, but in this psalm, the psalmist says, My eyes are awake through the watches. That is, at night. He stays awake at night, that I may meditate on your word. So he stays up late in order to think about God's word. Sometimes if you can't sleep at night for one reason or another, it's helpful just to think about God's word, to reflect upon those promises that you have memorized and stored in your soul. In Psalm 143, verse 5, we read, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. In these previous verses I've chosen, the focus was to meditate upon God's word, on his precepts, learning about his ways. But here the focus is on his works, what God has done, reflecting historically on how God has redeemed his people, or reflecting historically upon how God gave them victory over the Canaanites, and many other ways that God has delivered his people. So that would be part of his work. His works would also relate to his works of creation, thinking about his works of creation and coming to understand them that they in turn might teach us something about our Creator. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the works of your hands. So we have three terms there for the intellectual activity, remember, meditate, and to muse, to contemplate. So these are important concepts in understanding the faith rest drill. Now, in this, the, as I pointed out, what's important in the faith rest drill is to have Scripture stored in your soul, to, be, to memorize Scripture so that we can then claim those promises. And this is something that I find isn't emphasized as much today as it once was in, in churches. I think that part of this is uh, uh, we are typical of many churches today in our structure. We don't have a Sunday school hour uh, preceding the uh, worship of the church. I would hope that one day we might be able to expand to that. But many churches have sort of, our Bible churches have done away with that. They'll have 
uh, their morning worship service, and at the same time they have prep school for their kids. But we lose a certain format of training and teaching when we don't have a Sunday school time. You can have adult Sunday school and Sunday school for children. It gives and provides a little more time for instruction and training than you can accomplish in just the hour to hour and 15 or 20 minutes that you have in a morning worship service. And this is very helpful. Uh, in, in days gone by, churches would meet Sunday morning. You would have Sunday school hour. Then you would have church. And then at night you would have a, a little less formal service. And during these times, other things would be accomplished. Often in <clears throat> historically and traditionally, uh, the congregations would be taught new hymns. At, at night, and they would be taught how the congregation would be taught how to sing the different parts in the different hymns, so that the congregation was truly a part of the choir. And this would then, once they had mastered this at night, and even though attendance may be lighter at night than in the morning, that would provide a core group that would uh, ground the. Uh, the, the congregation in the morning when they would sing these hymns when they were initially new, new for them. So those would be some things that would be accomplished. Uh, in Sunday school hour, you can accomplish different things with Bible memory. You have the kids for a couple of hours instead of just one hour. You can have uh, uh, little competitions. You can memorize the books of the Bible, memorize Scripture. You just have more time to to teach and to learn and to be trained in ways that aren't necessarily conducive to just the sort of uh, one-voice lecture format that we have in, uh, in, in a morning worship service. So people are left on their own to figure out how to memorize Scripture, and some people are good at it and some people are not, but we all need to memorize Scripture. That's one of the reasons I put together the little book on promises and why I repeat promises over and over again before certain classes is so that if you hear them enough, then they will become embedded in your own thinking and you will have memorized those. But you need to plan your life in such a way that you have time uh, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening, that, that's uh, a time set apart from distractions and interruptions when you can focus, read through a, two or three chapters of Scripture, and then focus on verses to memorize and just work on one or two verses a week. If you worked on memorizing two verses a week, at the end of a year you would have 104 verses memorized. At the end of a couple of years you would have over 200 verses uh, memorize, and then you're well on your way to having good, a uh, good, uh, good reserve of promises that you can claim in times of difficulty and times of trouble. One of the things that I'm doing in this this series of lessons is to give us some ideas of how to claim promises and how to think through those promises. Last time we started on Isaiah 40:31 looking at various aspects uh, in that verse. A great promise. Many of us have memorized this, if you've heard me recite it many times. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is from a tremendous chapter in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. 
And if we look at the con- context, we see what the, that there's a contrast here. The verse begins with the word but, and that contrasts human strength and human ability uh, with the ability or strength that comes from God. The contrast is with the youths who faint in Isaiah 40. Uh, 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord. So there's a contrast between those who wait on the Lord who may not be young, who may not be vigorous, who may not have much strength in and of themselves, but unlike the youth that is full of uh, energy and full of enthusiasm, full of motivation, full of optimism, and is strong physically and mentally, the believer who is trusting in the Lord, no matter what his physical circumstances may be, has an edge. He is uh, superior to the youth that is trusting in his own ability and his own his own strength. So that was one of the first things that I noted last time, that human ability is limited. Second thing we see here is this emphasis on waiting on the Lord. On <coughs> waiting on the Lord, we saw that the Hebrew word here is the word kavah, which primarily has the meaning of of hopeful expectation. It's not just waiting. Think about the times that you think about waiting. Uh, perhaps you've been called in for an IRS audit. You have to sit out in the office and wait, and you have no idea when they're going to call you in. Or some of us have gone down to challenge our uh, property taxes at the Harris uh, County uh, uh, Appraisal District, and so we have to go out there and take a number, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And there's not necessarily a hopeful expectation in either of those scenarios. You're just waiting. Uh, That's not the idea here. It's not just waiting for waiting's sake. It is waiting with a hopeful expectation, a positive anticipation of how God is going to eventually work in our life or in history. That's the idea of waiting. And I pointed out last time that in older uh, lexica, that uh, in Hebrew, based on previous studies, I pointed out BDB was published in the early 20th century, the idea was thought to relate to the weaving of a rope. Well, that's pretty much been debunked now, and in current um, lexica supported by modern studies in Ugaritic and Akkadian that weren't available in the early, early 20th century, the idea is really that of confident expectation, much like the Greek word elpis and has that emphasis on waiting expectantly for something. And it is often used in uh, parallelism with the word hope. For example, we looked at Psalm 39.7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? That's the word kavah. And it is parallel to my hope is in you. So this brings out the hopeful optimism that is present in the word uh, in the word wait it is not simply just uh, being patient and just sitting somewhere not knowing what will happen but there's this positive expectation of something that is going to take place that no matter how long it might be God will intervene he will intervene from his grace and from his justice and he will give us the aid that we need for whatever the circumstance might be.
when you're studying through a passage, it's helpful to think about uh, think about about a word to look that word up. As I pointed out, you can look it up in a Strong's Concordance or with uh, computer programs we have available today. It's easy to do these kinds of searches in the original language. You can use uh, programs like Logos, Bible Works, Accordance, uh, things of this nature, uh, Bible Search. Uh, there are some online uh, places that you can go as well, where all you have to do is basically do a right click with your mouse on the word, and you get the option to search the Hebrew word, because they've sort of embedded or hidden a Hebrew text or Greek text behind the English text. So this allows you to search through uh, these words, and uh, where you're always searching for the same Hebrew word, whereas the English word wait might translate two or three different Hebrew words or two or three different Greek words. This way you can focus your search just on the Hebrew word and see some parallel passages and parallel concepts. Another verse that parallels hope and wait is Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. That's Kavah, and it is parallel to, and in his word, I do hope. Now, in Psalm 135, we see that the focal point for wait and for hope is in God's word. It's always in God's word. It's important for us to understand that when we are in um, spiritual combat, that what we should use is the word of God. When Jesus was being tested by Satan in the wilderness, he didn't give Satan a theological dissertation. He did not describe the various uh, abstract principles derived from Scripture. He quoted Scripture verbatim in terms of its application. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for understanding the doctrinal rationales that are there, because that's, that's embedded there. But Jesus is using the Scripture itself, showing the importance of knowing the Word. And that's why, um, that's why Psalm 130, verse 5 says, It's in His Word that I hope. It's in His Word that I have confidence. I keep coming back to that. One of the things that I think has gotten a little off balance in some uh, some teaching churches, and I hear this in people's language, and we need to to think about how we use the term doctrine. Doctrine is a very important word. It simply refers, though, to instruction and to teaching uh, as, as the Greek word, and it talks about the instruction of Scripture not only in terms of what we think of as abstract theology, but it takes it all the way through to application. But sometimes the way people use the word Bible doctrine uh, it's, it's almost as if it's some kind of a code word that, that focuses more on the abstract doctrines that are taught than the Bible. And one of the flaws that we have seen from that approach is people who know a whole lot of doctrine. They know a lot of principles and rationales, but they're abysmally ignorant about the Bible. They don't know the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible, uh, along with your theology, you don't know squat. You have to know the Bible. That's the foundation. And so we have to become much more biblically literate in, in Scripture. We have to read through the Bible again and again and again. We have to know these things, know the events of Scripture. That's what gives us real spiritual uh, uh, a real ability spiritually to be self-sustaining is because we can then 
go back in our own soul. We understand the things that have happened in people's lives. We can rehearse those stories, those episodes, those events in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and derive comfort and strength from parallel circumstances and situations from these episodes. So we have to know the Bible. The focus of our faith is always on the Word, and these principles derived from the Word, they're not separated from the Word. And too often there's this tendency, we know abstract principles, but the anchor to the Word has often been slipped. And so we just have this free-floating principle that we're trusting in. And how is that different from just having a philosophy? That's a question we ought to ask, because a lot of people have a philosophy of life or hold to different philosophies of life, but we hold to a relationship to God that is mediated through his word. That's what's emphasized again and again as we go through these passages. Now, another set of verses that are helpful in understanding the word a weight is found in Psalm 25, verses 3 through 5. Psalm 25, verses 3 through 5. So turn back with me to the 25th chapter, uh, 25th Psalm, and we will think through these verses uh, for just, just a minute. Hello. Thing happened on my computer. Okay, Psalm 25. This is a Psalm of David. And David begins, it's always helpful when we look at promises to look at the context. David begins to you, O Lord, and he addresses God as Yahweh. That's seen there in the uh, uppercase L-O-R-D. That's a translation of Yahweh, focusing upon God as a covenant God of Israel. This is his personal name. And he is saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, second verse, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. So what we see already in this psalm is David is going directly to the Lord in prayer. We see that he pleads with the Lord on the basis of the fact that he trusts in God, and he is pleading with God to somehow intervene in his life so his trust in God will not be a source of embarrassment and that it will instead vindicate David's trust and God will give him victory over his enemies. And so he is initially uh, praying to God to give him victory that he might not be ashamed, but he goes on to apply that to a broader spectrum of anyone who is a believer and trusting in God. This is where verse 3 begins. And there he says, Indeed, none of no one... Uh, no one who waits on you, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. There's our word kava, and he is saying, let no one who expectantly hopes in you be ashamed. Anyone who is putting their trust in you, and if you fail them, then that would be an embarrassment. They would be ashamed. They would be uh, brought to a position of failure in their in their life, and this would bring dishonor to your glory. That's the embedded rationale that's here. Is he saying, God, we're to glorify you if you don't support us? 
If you don't vindicate us on the basis of your word, then you're not going to be glorified. In fact, we will be embarrassed and ashamed, and this will bring dishonor to you. So that's what undergirds uh, this particular request. He says, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Instead, in contrast, he says, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. This is the enemy. So we don't really know who the enemy is when he's first mentioned in verse 2. But in verse 3, we learn that this is someone who has uh, treated uh, David or the Davidic house uh, treacherously. He has been betrayed. Now, I think that in a lot of the Psalms, a specific incident is identified. But in Psalms like this, when no specific incident is identified, it allows us to universalize these principles uh, in terms of application. So as we look at this, we recognize that he's dealing with the fact that someone has betrayed him. We've all faced that at some time or another in our life. We've been taken advantage of. We've been lied to. We've had a friend betray us, somebody who has uh, not been honest with us. Uh, maybe it's been an employer or an employee. Someone may have stolen from us. Uh, it, all of these different situations fit within the category of someone who has dealt treacherously with us uh, without cause. And so he, David is praying that God would not cause him or any believer who trusts in God to be ashamed, but instead uh, those who have dealt treacherously, those who have betrayed us, those who have uh, dealt wrongly with, with us are the ones that should be uh, that should be dealt with in justice. So we are those who wait upon the Lord. That's how he's characterizing a believer. In verse 4, he goes on, he says, Show me your ways. So in this period where he is waiting on the Lord, we are to be taught and we are to learn of God. He says, Show me your ways, teach me your paths. There is a parallelism there, a synonymous parallelism, where the show me is parallel to teach, and your ways is parallel to your paths. So here the the prayer is that the Lord would instruct David as to how to live and how to walk with the Lord. And this is further developed in the first stanza of verse 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me. So the focal point of how we learn God's ways, God's paths, and are taught by God is in that first line of verse 5. It's in your truth. The truth of God's word is what is in uh, what is in the scriptures. So we take that and apply it to what the New Testament says, that we are to walk in the light and walk in the truth then this is the same thing as walking uh, by the Spirit. We always are focused on the Word of God. That is what we have to know, what we have to learn. So when we are walking in the truth, when we are uh, walking by faith, there are two aspects to that. There's an active aspect and a passive aspect. There's an active aspect that tells us there's something we should do in obedience in relation to the promise. For example, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's what we should do. We should admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. 
So we do something. In the Joshua 1.8, what do we do? We meditate. We take the time. We carve out time of our schedules to reflect and read uh, God's Word and to think it through. These are the things that we do. Then there's a passive side to the faith rest drill where after we do what God says to do, we relax and wait upon him, and he will bring about the consequences. Think about the battle of Jericho. They were told to do something. They had to trust God in doing what he told them to do. They were to walk around the city uh, each day in silence, to walk around the city outside the walls and then go back to their camp. Uh, they weren't to engage in battle. They weren't to respond to any of the cat calls or cries from the uh, inhabitants of Jericho uh, from the walls. They just walked around the city each day in silence. Then the last day walked around it seven times, blew their horns, yelled, and the walls came down. So their 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 focus was to do what God said to do and then to wait and rest upon God to do what he promised to do, which was to give them uh, to give them victory. So we see in that event both the active sense as well as the passive passive sense. So the claim there, lead me in your truth and teach me for explanation. This is why he does this, for you are the God of my salvation. Now, is this talking about uh, salvation in terms of justification, or this is salvation talking in terms of deliverance from David's trials and from those who have betrayed him and those who have opposed him. I would suggest this is not talking about uh, justification, salvation. This is talking about deliverance from the trials and testing that David was going through. In fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, the word salvation does not refer to salvation from sin, salvation from eternity in the lake of fire. It's talking more in terms of either deliverance from uh, some sort of trauma, some sort of attack, some sort of situation in this life, or maybe uh, ultimate uh, ultimate deliverance, but mostly it's some sort of situation uh, in the here and now. So he says, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait, and there's that word kavah again, I hope all the day. There's a confident expectation that God is going to intervene in the negative consequences of our life, and he is the one who is going to provide for us. Let's go to another verse just a little later in that same psalm, Psalm 25, verse 21. At the end of this psalm, David prays, Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. He's really focusing now upon the character of God. He knows that God is the one who's going to preserve him. And the Greek, I mean, excuse me, the Hebrew word here for preserve is a synonym for the word uh, for salvation. And so here again we see that his focus is on deliverance from his current crisis or his current calamity. He's not talking about 
spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin. He's talking about survival in the midst of his cur- the current crisis, he says. And he focuses on the character of God. And that's one of the things we see so often in the Psalms is that the psalmist rehearses the character and the attributes of God and is calling upon God to intervene in his life and to preserve him because of who God is, because of his character. And so he focuses here on the integrity and uprightness of God as the source of his deliverance. And he says, because of that, because he knows who God is, he says, I wait expectantly, I have confident expectation on your intervention. That's the, the sort of a paraphrase of what he is saying there. Another psalm that we see where the word wait is used is in Psalm 27:14. Wait on the Lord. It's a command to others, an exhortation. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. That is, to strengthen your soul, to give us, to edify us, to give us courage in the midst of crises, to give us a strength to handle difficult circumstances and what seem to be oppressing circumstances. Be of good courage, he shall strengthen your heart. And then he says, repeats it again, wait, I say, uh, upon the Lord. Uh, this, he says again, uh, repeats this concept in Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. So here we see the passive idea, waiting, and the active idea, keeping his way, being obedient to the Lord. Wait upon the Lord and keep his way. What's the result? He shall exalt you to inherit uh, the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. So when we look at Psalm 37, this is an interesting interesting thing because we see this also in Psalm 37, 9, this concept of inheriting the land, uh, owning the land, possessing the land. Psalm 37, 4 says, uh, command is to wait upon the Lord, to keep his way, to walk in obedience. That was the principle in the Mosaic Law that Israel would not enjoy the blessings of the land unless they were obedient to the Lord. So in Psalm 34, the psalmist is saying that we wait on the Lord in obedience, and the result is that God is the one who will give uh, give them victory and ownership and possession of the land, and that will mean that the wicked will be cut off and not have an inheritance or possession uh, in the land also indicates the fact that waiting on the Lord is something that has a long-term focus. It's not something where we're going to wait on the Lord and this year, next year, maybe two years, three years from now, we see the end result. It may be that the end result does not come for generations or centuries. And this is certainly true in terms of Israel's full and final possession of the land. So in terms of waiting on the Lord, we need to develop a long-term vision. It might not bring about complete judicial uh, resolution in this life. It may wait until the final judgment of God. So the, the emphasis there in Psalm 37:34 is on the fact that God is the one who ultimately brings the blessing and ultimately exalts them uh, to inherit the land. We look back at Psalm 37, 9, 
Uh, he also uses the concept of waiting on the Lord there, encouraging that. But he says something else that's interesting in that verse. He says, evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Now, if we look at that um, context, verse 7, he's talking about the passive part, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. So somebody seems to be very successful and to have gotten away with uh, uh, with whatever it is they've gotten away with. They're, they've lied, they've cheated, they have stolen, uh, they have been guilty of embezzlement, they have been guilty of fraud, they've been guilty of misappropriating funds or misusing the power of their office. Whatever it may be, they seem to have prospered in his way. Well, don't let that overwhelm you. Sometimes we get that way when we think about politics and politicians, and we are overwhelmed. They won't get away with it. Uh, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. We are to cease from anger, to forsake wrath. Do not fret, do not worry. It leads only to evil doing. So our natural response sometimes when someone has taken advantage of us, someone has cheated us, defrauded us, stolen from us, is that we react in anger or wrath, and we compound the problem by doing something which is uh, wrong, criminal, uh, and destructive. And so it's in that context that David then says, for evildoers will be cut off, for, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Now we have a similar statement made in Matthew 5, 5, where uh, Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, that word meek, as I've pointed out many times, is a, is a misunderstood word. It has the idea, really, of authority orientation. Those who are oriented to the authority of God and are obedient to God, these are the ones who will inherit the land and the coming kingdom. Those who are the ones who will have and enjoy an inheritance. And so, that's parallel to what David is saying here. Don't respond to evil with evil, but remain obedient or under the authority of God, and the result is that you will inherit the land. Uh, same thing as what Jesus is saying, the word that's translated earth, often in Matthew 5.5 5 is really the, the word that should be translated land, uh, indicating a promise of, of the land for Israel. Now remember, Matthew 5.5 5 is still in the context of Jesus offering the kingdom and bringing in the kingdom for Israel at that time. But I thought that would be, was, a, was an interesting and important uh, connection. And then in Psalm 52.9, just to wrap up with one last verse, the psalmist says, I will praise you forever because you have done it, and in the presence of your saints, this is public testimony in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. And the idea of waiting on God's name uh, indicates a focus on God's character. The name is often that which relates to the uh, character of God, and so this becomes a source of comfort for us and strength. We were reminded of the character qualities of God that we put in the essence box, the sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, his justice. Righteousness is the standard of God's 
uh, character. Justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. God's eternal love for us. He is eternal life. He knows all things, is, is present to everything in his creation. He's omniscient and omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He, he is able to do that which he desires to do. He is true in all that he does. He is veracity and he is immutability. Now, we can focus on uh, some ba- basic characteristics of his uh, character as uh, his integrity, his righteousness, justice, love, and truth. These are part of his character, and that becomes a foundation on why we wait on him, because we know he is a righteous God. We know he loves us. He knows that he will deal with us. The way he deals with us is perfectly just, and it is on the basis of truth. Therefore, we can wait Upon the Lord. And so this is the challenge from Isaiah 40:31 that we claim that promise we are going to relax and wait upon Him in obedience. We'll come back and talk about uh, the verse some more and these principles some more next time. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon your word and the promises of your word. Help us to faithfully wait upon you expectantly, hopefully with confidence, knowing that you are in control of all things. And as uh, Paul reminds us in Romans 8, that we know that all things work together for good because you are in control and you are working out your plans and purposes in human history. Father, strengthen us and encourage us with these principles and these promises. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.